This is Talking Years. My name is Frank Wardinger. This week's guest is somebody I've known for almost two decades now. I first met Danielle De Palma back at Purchase College in the studio production department. And she first struck me as an incredible talent, an incredible engineer, and a hard worker who was just an all-around great person. We're going to be listening to music in this episode from many of the artists that she's worked with, including Mercy Bell, Sharon Van Etten, Haley Wojcik, Field Mouse, Florence and the Machine, and Emily King. Danielle has now risen all the way up to the production manager at the Bowery Ballroom in New York City. Quick production note that this episode is going to be slightly different than the usual because Danielle actually traveled down from New York to see me in Philadelphia in order to get an updated hearing test and ear mold impressions for her new in-ear monitors. Danielle was gracious enough to allow us to record while we were doing her ear mold impressions. And we're going to start off by asking Danielle how she got into the role of being a production manager and, and why she chose the Bowery Ballroom to be her venue. Because of my history there, so not only just like a teenager sneaking to shows and Dexter, who is our head of security, and he's still there and still wonderful. Um, he hates when I tell this story, but I remember um, I remember sneaking in to see Ted Leo with um, with a friend of ours and and like finding the back staircase that lets you right up to the front row of the stage. And getting right up there and then, you know, dancing around in the mosh pit a little bit. And it was only for the last three songs, but it was such a memorable experience. And to think you're giving that experience to hundreds of thousands of kids. I do not condone sneaking into the venue. um, But do it. But take the backstage staircase. (laughs) It's on the left. It's (laughs) Just kidding. It's probably locked now. (laughs) (laughs) something about feeling like I could change the culture that was there feeling like it wanted to be changed because we've been a rock venue for so long and something really cool now is is we're coming up on our 25th anniversary which is wild to think about how rapidly things are changing in New York and that you could kind of hang on for that long and at least up to you know right now being an independent venue you know with still just a couple of owners who I love dearly and can go to them and what is so cool is that they're on the same page of like it does need to look good it needs to sound good people need to have a good time seeing and experiencing music you know it's not like it's not this profits first mentality it's Mm -hmm. not this i don't know it feels really organic and and community focused and so i thought and still think um that it's a reason to hang on bands would come through knowing that a they've seen you know or heard about their favorite performer playing at Bowery and and kind of wanting something more of of the venue and so that was I thought it could make a positive change and and it seems to be I think it's sounding better than it ever has and bands are leaving with a with a wonderful experience that's awesome I mean it's one of the things that kind of surprises me about the place is that it it seems as at home hosting like 
a nine inch nails or, you know, name your biggest artist versus, you know, a band who this is the biggest stage they've ever played. And it feels like it's a, it's those type of venues that are really special and they've, they've gone away a lot in a lot of cities because, well, I mean, the pandemic ate them up or the other thing that happens is that they become bought and then it's just kind of a cartoon of themselves. So the fact that it's still independent is so cool. And the fe- I can like feel the pride in your voice from it. It's so cool. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I think for something that that takes up such a chunk of, of your life, which live sound, any production person can relate to. There are many, many long days. Mm-hmm. It goes back to it. You have to love what, what you do and feel good about it. So this isn't about me, but to tell the full story, back at Purchase College, I had inherited the job of production manager or head of sound over at the student center uh, from John Jetter, now a huge mixing engineer and, and, and producer in New York City. Um, and when I reached my senior year and the end of that, I decided that the only person that I should pass it on to was you. And you ended up running that stage for a while after me. Um, I have been forever impressed by your skills and by your professionalism and but just by your ability to kind of handle stuff that comes at you. But I'm also curious, um, what, what prompted you to get a hearing test when you were back in college? That's a good question. I don't, I don't really know what prompted it other than it seemed like a good thing to do. Sure um, is. I did. I did always kind of know that I wanted to work on records and mix records, um, and that hearing fidelity would be important. So, just kind of a nice baseline, a nice proactive step of my health. And then there was um, the reading some article, or you know, back in the day, those like message boards um, about getting some earplugs and and fitted earplugs and wearing those constantly for going to concerts. Because I remember being really young, sneaking into shows like 15, 16, 17, and the the wall of of amplifiers, you know, and knowing then just how blisteringly loud everything kind of was. You were really in tune to that thing, but the fact that you were thinking about this when you were a teenager is really astute maybe in some ways and then in in others i'm like oh it just kind of also added to my anxiety because what seems to carry over even still is like it's always it's always like a choice i have to make now and using informed consent as best as i can and of like here's the music that we're working with for this day and being in a, a venue that sees just such a variety of of stuff every day it's like it does have to become a daily battle like okay today we can keep everything sounding great and keep the audience safe and then there's moments where it's like it does take more of an emphasis and a conversation and then others where you know the bands will essentially just say this is 
a part of the experience is multi-sensory right. and like driving stuff to the the point of breaking is the experience and we you know at that point we go into not triage mode but we'll you know we'll keep people safe with um first letting them know that it's going to be happening providing earplugs and then and then just keeping the show as short as as possible In a personal way, you know, some days feel like a continuous loss, and then others are like, oh, okay, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed even that you even mentioned the audience in that (laughs) sentence. Because, I mean, you're in charge of the staff. You've got to keep the staff safe, because you're arguably the boss. In terms of that, yeah, the the supervisor, right, for the... For the production department yeah. of the venue. Yeah. So you're keeping the staff safe, so you gotta be able to put your foot down and say, This is hurting my staff, but also you're thinking about the audience and thinking, how do you weigh the artistic freedom and expression of the artist with don't hurt the people here? <laughs> right. You know, there's a there's a fine line. A balance, absolutely, yeah. Artistic integrity and then and and just actual safety. Yeah. Cause in truth, they should be able to do whatever they want. And the audience should be able to see and hear whatever they want. But like you mentioned, informed consent is missing sometimes where the audience doesn't know what they're getting into. How do we backpedal that to keep it safe? That's, that's an interesting question. How much of that, this is maybe a pointed question you don't have to answer. How much of your thinking behind that is universal in all the people in your shoes? Or how much of it is like you think that maybe you're thinking about this more indifferently than most people who have to run productions? Um, that's always that's always a tough one because it feels like a little bit of of a bubble writing and try to surround yourself with the good people that you can have these conversations together and bounce it off of one another. I think the reality in concert touring major venues let's see concert touring it isn't thought enough about and it isn't thought enough about in a in an artistic way um in a way that that does say you're able to value artistic integrity and what the show is allowed to become what i see a lot is that it's very litigious like it's it's who's gonna who's has the potential for a legal dispute if this. Lots of laws and lots of terminologies and not let's have a good show and keep everyone safe, Um, which is where I would love to see the conversation go.
I mean, you have a Joan Jett shirt on. So clearly <laughs> there's gotta be an attitude in music of, I know this is the tech mentality now is the move fast and break things, but that's also kind of the punk mentality, isn't it? Let's make this the most it can be in every capacity and, and the sound <laughs> experience has to be part of that. Right. But at the same time, if you're making it the most it can be and nobody can walk away from it without injury, did we do what we set out to do? Right. I remember um, this was back in our purchase college days. I was working on a, uh, just doing sound for a film set. And I remember the, somebody mentioned this and it's just stuck with me is like, we're trying to make a movie. If anybody gets hurt, we did it wrong. Entertainment, right? It's entertainment. It's, yeah. They were telling an actor essentially not to do something that was essentially going to hurt them just to get a good shot. Like we can figure out a way around it yeah. where you don't have to get hurt. That's tough in music when it's like, well, you know, my guitar amp or that drum set is capable of hurting you. Right off the bat, yeah, you know, when it is, and that's where mixing for in-ear monitors, and and I like being part of of that growing trend of figuring out a way to incorporate making a stage quieter, making a performer's experience safer so that they can do what they do. At this point, we decided to complete the reason why Danielle actually came down to Philadelphia to see me, which was to update her hearing test and complete ear mold impressions so that she can order some new in-ear monitors. If you've never done ear mold impressions before, the procedure is painless, uh, sometimes slightly uncomfortable or odd feeling, I like to say. Uh, it involves putting a small foam or cotton ball down near the eardrum, which is an odd sensation, and then filling up the ear canal with two-part silicone that then hardens or cures within a couple minutes. That whole process should be rather quick, and it's very hard to have a conversation during it. With that, I'll drop you right back into the conversation after we've removed Danielle's ear mold impressions. Yeah, not painful at all. A little weird. The, like, material is slightly cold at first yeah. but otherwise you don't really notice a thing um yeah and then it's just like you have an earplug in your ear for a few minutes and danielle that feeling while you have the ear mold impression in your ear is about the same as when you have a really well fit well sealing set of in-ear monitors which is to say it's about 30 to 40 decibels of isolation it's just a really good block yeah it is <laughs> So that's something that we're having to work with nowadays. It's just almost too much isolation. And yep. especially if you're in a space and you're trying to play with other people. I'm starting to see stuff post-COVID where a lot of musicians were just in their bedrooms and playing with headphones. And so in-ears are feeling more natural to mm -hmm. performers than they ever have. There are still actual bands that then, you know, you do need an element of everyone else around you, the 100%. world around you. So. You need to feel the stage and hear the stage. And, you know, the spatial awareness is very important. That's it, yeah. yeah. But, like, dealing with the psychology of that. Are you hearing about me? How you dealing without me? Hello. Did you keep all the records? Do they sound good without me? Hello. Heard you got in the way. 
But you're right, it's being normalized now because it's like, oh, we can have the bedroom or studio experience just with people here. Instead of in the past where you're like, if I can't hear the audience yelling back at me, then it's not a show. It's kind of the way. You can't, right. You're not immersed in, in the experience. You're not getting stuff back from it as well. And it's also the advent of more barricades, greater distance of the barricade between the audience, larger stages, I think, as the band kind of grows where, where mm. the disconnect becomes more and more apparent. Oh yeah, you get on like an 80 foot stage you know, the bass player is 20 feet away from the nearest person and 30 feet from their amp. I didn't even think about the security barricade. Now they're like 60 feet away from the nearest audience member. How do they feel not alone? Well, actually in that sense, in-ear monitors connect them more because you get the immediacy of the response in your ear versus hearing 80 feet away, you got- Right, or kind of, you don't want that world necessarily. You know, for better or for worse, you can shape the, the world inside of your head. It does take a really, careful and thoughtful engineer but right it's like you either don't want the sound of those those fans just blasting at you or people kind of talking around the stage or just that ambient volume that comes when your amps so far away and right at that point the crowd would sound kind of muted and and Mm -hmm. the energy would kind of be missing and that's something that i feel lucky to get to bring back Lots of options now with inner monitors, ones that have microphones on the outside, active ambient inner monitors that allow you to hear the stage and the world around you and turn that up or down to your liking, mix that in with the monitor cue mix that you're getting. There's also options for putting audience mics and stage mics up. Um, I'm curious, Danielle, and I know this might get a little bit technical, but what's your go-to strategies for getting the band to feel that energy return on stage. It's important, I think, for engineers, but also performers to understand that you are shoving stuff into your ears. And generally we hear as a fully immersive experience, right? And like psychologically, we're designed to perceive stuff in front of us a little bit differently Mm -hmm. as like a whole experience than we are kind of from behind us. Our brains do a ton of math to try to figure out where sound is coming from um, and if we should perceive it as a happy thing or a threat. And when you shove stuff into your ears, you're taking away from that quite a bit. And it's very much just where is my head and what is my my head doing? So, so the biggest one and what we're kind of seeing at a smaller level as you grow up is, is utilize the stereo imaging of in ears, you have a left and a right. I'm seeing a lot of new, younger musicians wanting to try out in ears and just getting a mono mix. Our brains just aren't used to hearing kind of stuff directly in front of our face for a very long period of time. It causes more fatigue. So utilizing the stereo plane where you can and kind of panning stuff as a way to make somebody feel like they're in the in a space. And then just fun tricks with targeted compression, multiband compression on audience mics and riding those up or down kind of in between songs. Utilizing 
spatial mics in a way that I, A, would never as a front of house engineer, um, <laughs> but B, kind of wouldn't if I was an engineer just mixing for, for floor monitors. Meaning like relying more on like the overheads of the drums versus all the close spikes. Exactly that. Kind of keying those to the snare a little bit too to give it a little oh. boost, a little life um, in the in the in-ears. this trick from a good buddy of mine who who mixes monitors regularly so there were two floor monitors on stage for the lead singer as a backup there was a small little shotgun mic right in between them pointing onto the stage um and filtered very effectively and utilized just a little bit to occasionally add some Here's what some stage volume feels like. Here's some here's some space there. It, so it feels less like you're in a box. Right. That's cool. Right. Right. The great thing about about not wearing in ears is that you could always kind of saunter over to the thing you wanted to hear more of. Um, so that kind of gives you that back a little bit. I love those solutions, you know, because there's so many creative ways. It's like using studio techniques that we use to create space and life in a recording, but using it just to create the artist's experience in the moment to help inspire them to have a good show. That's totally it, right? And the, and there have been a few engineers that have said that, like, and that's either why they love or hate mixing monitors is that it's more you have to think more like a psychologist than anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, you really are getting into one specific or these few specific musicians heads. And, but it is, it is kind of why I love it. It's, it's like, I think why you and I cater to the musicians and it's so Mm -hmm. much nicer to have and, and think similarly to, to them kind of relate to, okay, here's this person playing this instrument and they just want to do it to the best of their ability and you get to help them mm-hmm. achieve that while also um, extending the life of them being able to do what they do. And in, in an audio sense, let's, let's hope. Is that kind of how you got into production? I did. Yeah. And so you're in studio production. I was in studio production and what ironically half of our life was, was live sound Yeah. Um, in studio production makes sense. Um, I know what drew me to that world. I'm curious what drew you to that world. What drew me to it initially, I think, was I felt like we were coming up on the era of the end of analog recording, the end of tape recording, um, and performance-based recording, and coming up on the era of sample replacing and isolating instruments and recording in this new way that I I didn't feel like I could benefit 
Yeah. And I remember that in a, in a few studio internships where a lot of it was just transferring reel to reels into Pro Tools, and I was like, okay, this is this is cool because I still get to see the tape stuff happen. And then it became, you know, you would get the the gigs if you knew how to sample replace things or use auto-tune and and so that was really when I was like I need to move away from this I want to stay in this experience of capturing a moment and then live sound makes sense and that's where live sound was cool because it was it was you couldn't avoid needing to bring a band on stage and and do what you do and and that was it. And at the very end, whatever it was, it was it was there and it was received. And then and then you move on to the next thing. Now we're going to listen to a live recording of a show that Danielle engineered. This is Sharon Von Etten with guest vocalist Nora Jones playing at the Webster Hall in 2019. So then you went straight from college into, was it basically straight into touring before doing venue work or? Yeah, uh, kind of in tandem. Okay. Kind of in tandem. It was always like, there's always a way to sneak into shows for free growing up Mm -hmm. in New York and a lot of venues being 21 up. It was like, you know, if you helped your friends wrap a cable or load their gear out (laughs) uh, while they were double parked, you know, it was a... that was it. You could you could sneak into the show. I'm with the band. That was it. Somehow it was kind of weaseling, and then they wouldn't check IDs, and you could you could get away with it a little bit. But yeah, but working working in tandem every now and again because the live sound world is still very gig based. So it was it was kind of picking up gigs or picking up days where you could, and then until a tour called, and then and then kind of hitting the road. And I really loved that aspect. I love being able to travel um, and more or less get paid to to do it and see some cool places. That's awesome. Still be able to stay with bands and chat music and chat the creative experience. Mm-hmm. Still be able to talk to them in terms of like song structure and where we are and what they need and relate to them in that way while also getting to do the aspect that I love of, of really mixing something cool. I know you as like a front of house mixing engineer. Is, mm-hmm. is what I know you as. It's like your skill set in my brain. And then I hear that you are production manager of an awesome venue in New York, the Bowery Ballroom. And that's like, that's a whole job right there. That's a crazy amount. Like, I'm curious, maybe you can explain then, because you go from this enviable job of basically being on tour, were you doing front of house and monitors on those tours and stuff? It would change based okay. on the artist, yeah. Cool. But generally, a lot of those, a lot of um, van and trailer tours and, and yeah. front of house and monitors and usually on the same console. I did get the amazing experience, though, of doing a few shows with 
Florence and the Machine and just getting to be a stage tech on that. That was one of my first experiences and that one still so important, yeah. And so, you know, seeing how a, a big full production like that is run is probably really eye-opening. Very much so. Yeah. How, really how long the days were. Um, <laughs> how much the tour carries with them and how much of a say they have in the creative process. feeling of going in and and I remember Jones Beach very specifically again being from New York and like having seen shows there and it being such an iconic venue and you just see what you walk into which is really just a shell of a of a theater and then what the tour transforms it into and then this beautiful experience kind of solidified why I wanted to be doing this and nice you know, push push for that that same feeling with every show. And then now working at Bowery, I mean, I read some of your blog posts on Sound Girls because nice. you're a contributor over there, which is a whole other thing that I hope we have time to talk about. But the rundown of like pre-show, uh, the I mean, weeks ahead of time pre-show, and then like the actual load and how the show goes and the loadout and explaining that. I thought was actually really eye-opening, even having been in those environments much less than you. I was like, oh, this is such a clear-eyed way of seeing the whole production from beginning to end. It was what you're essentially doing now in, in the venue is having that tour experience, but like you're basically giving a good tour experience to each band who comes through. That's totally it. And that that was my mission kind of coming into it used to be run very differently, very much like a old school New York rock and roll club, um, you know, typical grumpy sound man. And, and what I would see a lot of touring myself was venue versus tour combative dynamic. Instead of working together on something, it was it was like you were always kind of imposing. The tour was imposing on the venue and vice versa. The venue implemented all these regulations and really wanted to break down that and make it more of a collaborative experience. Once I was young in New York City the summer was hard and damn it was pretty Black 
that with a couple of years of not doing live shows and, and touring, if there would be any new folks interested in what it looks like, how to do it better, how to do it at all. I yeah, I hope it I hope it helps. I hope it's it's nice to kind of talk through the process and to normalize it, to take the good stuff out of what people are doing and make that the normal rather than the the exceptional experience. And the thing that struck me, because I, I read a, a few of them, actually, I think three or four. And the thing that struck me is that uh, the the touch points are always, and this person did a good thing, or this person reacted the nice way, or this person. It's all about the people in those moments. Mm-hmm. It was rarely about like, here we came into a technical issue. The equipment was a problem. Or like, it's, okay, well, there's equipment problem, or uh, how do we... <laughs> One example, how do we hang a giant inflatable eyeball because Arcade Fire wants to be ridiculous. Um, so like, okay, that's a technical problem, but it could be a giant fist fight, but instead it was collaborative between you and this tour. That's so cool. I mean, it's just a different attitude and it, it's really refreshing and hopefully, hopefully not as unique as it sounds when I read about it or hear about it. Totally, yeah. I hope we're the same and... and- especially coming out of this again it's like we're talking about um and other folks have mentioned on the podcast it's we're in the entertainment industry it's designed to be fun it's designed to to provide an enjoyable experience you know don't don't make it harder than it than it needs to be i do i want to entertain the idea of my god thinking at first, well, what if, what if the answer was yes? What would it look like? You know, what would it look like to do the, the nice thing first, or even just the, like the thing that they're asking? Cause in the end, uh, I mean, everybody on a stage behind stage, everybody serving that night, everybody who's at the door like this, everybody showed up. They had to leave their comfortable house To go do something to hopefully make a living, but also hopefully not have the worst day at work of their lives. What can we do to make it not only a good show, not only, you know, put our egos aside and like figure out the problems, but also like go home and say, that was a good day at work. Right. Because that's, I feel like should be our goal every day. Absolutely that. Yeah. There was that old adage of, you know, do what you love and you don't work a day in your life. I think that's silly. Instead, I think, show love in what you, how you work. And then work is not something where it doesn't feel like a day of your life. It feels like a useful day of your life. Absolutely. And if anybody is not familiar with Bowery Ballroom, which is a, you know, storied, awesome venue in New York, what's special about that place? Why, why did you land your feet there versus like any other venue in the world? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. 
The story there is a funny one. I was working in a lot of New York venues at the time. And the production manager of a venue in Brooklyn, my, I would call him such a mentor and amazing friend, Evan, he was moving on to a new venue. And so there were going to be some openings. It coincided with me wanting to spend more time at home anyway and prioritizing my health in this new way. I feel like my health has always been this ongoing journey. But in 2016, I was diagnosed with cancer and needed something else, needed the country to get its act together, needed to feel taken care of. And so I was like, <laughs> you know, it yeah. it prompted... Um, prompted me taking the first steps it prompted the like okay let's this this gig working thing isn't so great for that it was the height of certain elections and threats mm -hmm. to the affordable care act which i was on at the time so i was looking for something more stable at home evan brings up you know he's like there might be some production manager positions open. Would you like it if I threw your name in the hat? I think you'd be a great fit. So he really took a chance on me. He saw something that I really respect and appreciate him for. And I said, yes. I remember going into the interview full well, thinking that it was for this venue in Brooklyn. And I was like, and I had my whole thing laid out, right? I had my whole plan. I was like... I love this venue. I love working here. It's great. And here's why. And here's certain changes I want to make. The owner, Michael, mentions right out, right out of the gate. He's he's like, we're looking for somebody for the Bowery Ballroom. And as cartoonish and, and actual as it, you know, as it felt in my head, it was, I, I felt like my jaw dropped in that moment. Mm -hmm. I felt like everything kind of paused and went quiet for a second. I thought you know kind of for sure the person that they had there would would stay with the venue forever you know he was he was the quintessential he was the guy really cool because then it just kind of broke down any walls any preconceptions I had I was just able to talk as myself and somebody who had experience at the venue the main thing that I feel great about is how many like I was saying, I call them happy graduations I've seen of people that I've hired that have gone on to do amazing things. Mm. Touring, playing guitar, you know, with Olivia Rodrigo and doing oh, these nice. huge tours um, to, to engineers going out on their first van tour doing TM front of house to engineers pursuing audiology. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of just really great great stories of you use the venue as your leg up and then 
take it to the next level, figure out what you want to do and, and surround yourself with like a supportive community. And it's a hallmark of a good boss that you see that as like as a success and not as a uh, attrition. We're losing people. Uh, instead, you're like, nice, spread your wings, go do that. I mean, going into audiology is maybe an arguably insane thing to do, but the rest yeah. of those things sound great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask you about this because um, you actually just mentioned one of the engineers who went off to go do audiology, but before that she was working on a project, the Women in Sound zine and podcast on Sonos um, that she has. So that's Madeline Campbell, who I just recently got to meet. You were you know, all over that, plus very much involved in Sound Girls, which we mentioned earlier. Tell me about, like, I, this is kind of a pointed question, I guess, but are you seeing in your <clears throat> years in, um, in audio a shift in kind of how representation is working in our field. And I'm curious how you see your own personal role in this, in your position as production manager at the Bowery Ballroom. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is a very active choice. Absolutely. And one that I strived for first coming on as, as production manager and whenever I get a chance to shape my crew, if I'm taking any freelance work. Yeah, Bowery is a place of education, first and foremost. I always say that that you should be spending as much time learning something new as you are doing the thing and moving people up. And the way that the production tiers are structured, it does allow for that. It allows for at least somebody on the crew to be fairly new to something or come in with interest and then kind of find a way to hone that from there. I think that we're seeing a lot of really great progression away from the industry being so male dominated and also promoting that culture, right? Inviting people that haven't had a voice to the table. Another cool one you haven't mentioned is diversify the stage, which I think has been so extraordinary. Um, it's Noelle who plays in Fits in the Tantrums. Oh, cool. And she started it as a way to pool um, just a greater diversity of students, young students who want to learn the production side. And it could be anything from being on stage to agency type stuff and how things get booked, um, but educating and promoting them um, and doing it in such a holistic way that values what they need to get paid, right? No, no free labor. Everything that you're doing is, is worth it and amazing job placement opportunities and something that I'm focusing now more so on after the pandemic is that education aspect that, that, learn to do things the proper way, that understanding that we are still operating really heavy equipment, really bright lights, really loud sound equipment, and doing that safely. Oh, you your brother, your brother, he was broken. Oh, Liza, yeah, that freedom. It's a 
but it is it has to be like it's a very active choice every day and i think that the hardest thing for me to learn too is to to let go i i brought a lot of harsh criticism on to other marginalized groups that i was trying to uplift Mm. uh, when i first started because i got so much of that because i got the you need to work twice as hard you know as as a guy to make it in this field you need to like suck it up sort of mentality right the especially the the working while you're sick um or not feeling a hundred percent and catching myself and realizing um you know that i wasn't treating everyone the same and that the best thing to do is to is to provide support and instruction but then just just let them do it let them try it and figure out the questions to ask and just be there when they do without judgment give space for everybody to fail or succeed equally (laughs) that's it that's it are really close to time so yeah. I have one more question um, I've been trying to ask people this especially people in your position who understand both sides of the world like the music side but also you get kind of where I'm coming from with hearing health and with audiology what's something that you wish the audiology or the hearing health world understood better about the musician's life and the musician's experience how can they approach musicians better? To think about it holistically, I think. To think about how a person moves through their their everyday. To, to take kind of the clinical stuff out of it and try to relate with empathy. Kind of tying it back to living with cancer my most successful like follow-up appointments are always when they you know when they ask how the music is going they'll kind of touch in on the life aspects or they'll i'll ask a question and they'll break it down kind of like okay well what works for you in your routine how do you go about your your life so yeah so just inviting them into the conversation having a level of empathy and using the science to inform how you can make a lasting lifestyle change rather than using the science as an absolute. Thank you for taking the time for this because I was so looking forward to this. And oh, good. This has been, it's been great. Thank you. And same. It's, it's 
always so nice to to see you and to see you again after all this and yeah. and thank you for the help though, of too, course. With, with the in-ears and um yeah i'm excited for another few years of great shows Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. The show is produced by Juan Vazquez, Mary Kim, and myself, Frank Wood. Thanks for listening.